Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. In that rally were people waving Israeli flags and Palestinian flags. And in the Australian community, where we want to see people respected regardless of their background, Islamophobia has no place, just as anti-Semitism has no place, it would be fabulous to see, rather than communities taking sides, they were actually standing together as one against that loss of innocent lives. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me in the studio in Canberra is Simon Birmingham. Simon is the Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister. Now, I've invited Simon onto the program this week because there is literally so much to talk about in his portfolio space. Uh, the Prime Minister is in the United States. He will shortly go to China. The terrible war in Israel, sadly, tragically, heartbreakingly, continues apace. Uh, I also wanted to touch base with Simon, who is now the most senior Liberal moderate in the Parliament, about where he sees the Liberal Party's broad church right at this point in time. It's an interesting chat. Here it comes. Simon, welcome to the pod. Great to be with you again. Uh, let's start with the United States, because obviously the Prime Minister is there as we are recording. Now, the sort of <laughs> the wild dysfunction in that democracy is on display once again for all of us to see. The House of Representatives in the States has been effectively paralysed, I gather, for at least three weeks because there's no speaker. There's a bunch of legislation that is required in order to give effect to the AUKUS agreement, both in the US and in Australia. And look, I'm, I'm sure you'll say to me, Simon, well, obviously the Prime Minister must do, you know, redouble efforts to focus Congress and all of that sort of stuff, which by all means say to me. But I actually want to ask you a bigger question. Given that democracy in the US is becoming, at least to my observation, increasingly unfathomable and increasingly unable to do just basic practical things like pass legislation giving effect to an agreement that the Biden administration says it wants. With your portfolio hat on, do you seriously think that Australia can go on considering the US a reliable security partner with that basic issue that does the democracy actually function? Uh, Catherine, I'm, I'm reminded of the great saying attributed to, uh, to Churchill that is that democracy is a terrible system, it's just better than all of the others. And in that sense, democracy absolutely is sometimes messy uh, and that messiness can create confusion or uncertainties. 
Uh, but ultimately, is it about reflecting the will of the people and about governments being accountable in ways that non-democratic systems aren't? And the US system has been tested before and is certainly being tested again, but the different democratic institutions always come through in the end as well. And I think we should maintain confidence that despite the current tests, the system will come through, uh, that the US remains uh, our most important security ally and partner, uh, and that is not about to change. But our partnerships the world over are also incredibly important. And as we see uh, a stronger China and the strategic competition that's at play and in that strength there that uh, China's economy growing in the way it is, its military growing at the scale and rate it is, mm. that the network of partnerships becomes ever more important. And that doesn't downgrade one iota the strength and the importance of the US alliance, but it does mean that as we work cooperatively, which we have with the US to establish the Quad as a security partnership, AUKUS as a as a means to share defence technology and cooperation, but then also broader cooperation across the democratic world, the now routine inclusion of Australia amongst the G7 nations, which some have pointed to as a potential democratic 10 in terms of the more regular inclusion of ourselves and uh, Korea and India as part of that type of dialogue, our inclusion as, uh, as part of NATO discussions that give us a platform for security considerations where NATO looks beyond its traditional North Atlantic horizon and has the AP4 added on of Japan, Korea, ourselves and New Zealand. These are all really important uh, additional attributes to really strengthen that cooperation as well as then, of course, our regional architecture and how we continue to work really closely with ASEAN uh, as a close partner uh, and as, with the Pacific Island nations as uh, as uh, very close family, friends and partners. And obviously it, that's sort of been the response because obviously, you know, we've this question is sort of posed routinely in foreign policy circles in terms of, you know, does Australia need a more independent foreign policy? Are Australians geared up to what that would mean in terms of, uh, you know, additional defence spending, all of those implications if we were to... Well, I'm not saying step away from the alliance because that's ridiculous, but I mean seek to uh, not be reliant necessarily on events in Washington in order to safeguard Australia's security. So, and your response is basically we've got to hedge our bets, we've got to have a whole bunch of relationships around the place, but the US alliance is, you know, is fundamental and always will be. It sounds like you're more optimistic than me about the state of <laughs> of, of that democracy uh, because it's sort of uh, obviously, you know, I'm not intending to be hysterical about it, but it, it, it looks increasingly ungovernable to me. I'm optimistic about the resilience of their systems, their democratic architecture, also a market economy that I think drives and shapes that and has provided constant renewal in terms of technological advantage and innovation and, and how that will also drive and inform the US economy, its security capabilities and settings as mm. well. So there mm. are, I think, a lot of reasons to see some optimism amongst, yes, what uh, from a media landscape and a sheer day-to-day -day political landscape, yeah. 
has that untidiness of politics to it. Uh, but uh, the bigger picture is one that we certainly shouldn't lose sight of. And just sort of picking up from that, uh, you know, obviously you as the portfolio holder remain convinced of the importance of uh, the US to Australia's security. Uh, but uh, please don't take this question as a sledge because it's not how I intended it at all. We did see uh, when uh, Penny Wong was in opposition, we did see some, well, thinking out loud makes it sound a bit silly, but we did see her sort of trying to articulate or move some of the dials in terms of Australia's foreign policy and put her her and Labor's own stamp, right, on what foreign policy means under, you know, a future Albanese government. We haven't seen a lot of policy from you guys yet. I'm intrigued, you know, because you're, you're a thoughtful person. You'll be doing lots of thinking. Are you likely to venture forth in a policy sense to articulate you know, the coalition's, you know, objectives in, in foreign policy in, in I mean, I don't mean to compare you directly to Penny. I mean, mm. she's a friend of yours, so I know you won't mind, but it's sort of like, are we likely to see that from you? Well, uh, Penny had nine years in opposition. Uh, a long time to a, think. A, yep. a long time. Uh, and most of that time, I think, was as the shadow foreign minister. Yeah, it's true. Um, I'm not aspiring to nine years in opposition. No. Uh, and in this first half, not quite reached, of, uh, of the government's term. Uh, obviously, a lot of focus has been on what the government is or isn't changing yep. and where they are or aren't living up to different things. Sure. Penny gave some significant speeches about making greater use of sanctions in uh, in the way Australia applies its foreign policy. And she, I recall, highlighted the plight of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang mm, she as did. an example there. Yep. No sanctions have been levelled by the Albanese government uh, in relation to the plight of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang region. Mm. So um, there were statements made, certainly, and framing given pre-election, but not all of that is being lived up to uh, in the same way it was put pre-election. So uh, we will obviously look to hold the government to account, and these are issues I've raised, and I've made clear we would give bipartisan support if the government went down that type of path. Yeah. But of course, we'll have our own things to say as we get closer to the next election. And uh, I'll be looking at what is tragically an increasingly complex world mm. uh, in terms of the outbreaks of conflict and the competition that is at play. And I think we did leave very strong architecture in place for the relationships we were talking about at the start of this podcast. Uh, the building of the quad to a leaders level dialogue is important for that security architecture. Our ASEAN relations, our comprehensive strategic partnership there with whom we were the first nation that, uh, that ASEAN countries entered into and we managed that through a competitive process, it's safe to say, with mm. China equally seeking a similar type of relationship there. Yep. Uh, so uh, whilst I know there were lots of things that became quite politicised in the foreign policy mm. landscape at the time of the last election, mm. I think what we're seeing now 18 months almost on, uh, is that actually it's quite complicated. The competition is real. Just visiting Pacific Island nations uh, with greater frequency or not, and of course we had COVID in the last term of parliament, mm. so it's pretty hard to visit with the type of frequency you might like, but that isn't an automatic pathway. Uh, to being able to guarantee that you always get the outcomes you would wish for. 
We've continued to see challenges uh, with the Solomon Islands. Uh, we've, of course, seen uh, the security agreement uh, with Vanuatu signed but unable to be ratified. Uh, the agreement with Papua New Guinea is quite some time behind the initial promises and schedules. So mm. these are difficult things which we're seeking to handle responsibly in terms of the engagement because we know the challenges are there and we don't want to put the type of politicisation around how Australia engages in the region that perhaps was existing at the time of the last election. Mm, well, you've almost answered the question, actually, um, but let's you've, you've raised Xinjiang uh, and that gives, that gives me a segue to China, which is obviously where the Prime Minister's going next. And in terms of, you know, me how I presage that question, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying you need to have a different foreign policy in order to tick a box because obviously there are benefits to Australia in having having the country speak with one voice. My, my very first statement as a shadow foreign minister was, uh, was precisely that, to say we're yeah. at our strongest when we speak as one. Yeah. There will be differences. There will particularly be differences in nuance, yeah. uh, but the strategic pillars... Uh, we do want to make sure we are as aligned as possible for the good of the nation. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and I understand that, and I'm sure listeners understand the point you're making that there is, you know, that there is some desirability around that within an accountability framework, which is what you're trying to articulate. But anyway, China. Obviously, you're a former trade minister in government. Uh, the competition <laughs> environment that you referred to. Uh, a couple of minutes ago, you obviously had very lived experience with when you were the portfolio holder in trade. Uh, obviously, we're sort of in a we're in more of a phase of a thaw now in terms of the relationship, and the prime minister will will go to uh, China at the end of next week. I'm I'm interested in your analysis of that. Why Why do you think? that's happened. And obviously, you know, the government will say, well, because we did a better job of diplomacy and we didn't politicise the relationship. And you watch these areas closely. I'm interested in why you think Beijing is clearly interested at this point in resetting the relationship. So I think there are a few factors to be mindful of there, Catherine. Uh, first is that China has changed gear in terms of its wolf warrior diplomacy. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it's changed in terms of its ambitions or desires or the challenges that, uh, that we face and the risks we should be aware of. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that uh, what during that COVID period and during that period of escalating aggression towards Australia and the attempts at economic coercion that were driven through the trade sanctions... China was also being very aggressive in its diplomatic style and tone and actions with a number of other countries yep. around the world. Oh, true. Fair. That's yep. changed gear, not just with Australia, but elsewhere. I think there's also been a realisation in China that some of the trade sanctions they were deploying were counterproductive to China and weren't causing perhaps the reaction in Australia they had hoped for. Mm -hmm. And Australian industry, business the nation as a whole really should stand tall for the fact that these, this attempted coercion was applied, the infamous list of 14 demands was made and we have withstood it as a nation. And I give credit to the new government. They haven't yielded in terms of changing policy in relation to the changes that we had made that aggravated China, the ban on Huawei still stands, changes in critical infrastructure, foreign investment, uh, foreign interference laws, all of those things that were pursued under the previous government 
and did create tensions in the relationship, but which were necessary for the protection of our national interest, the Albanese government has maintained those policy mm-hmm. settings. And so that's welcome. But obviously there's been a willingness from China with a change of government to also drop the ban on ministerial contact. And that was really one of the most counterproductive things they did uh, in terms of, yes, they targeted our economy, they targeted Australian businesses with the sanctions and the attempted coercion, but they also refused to talk. And so it actually became really hard to work through how you address those issues when they weren't even willing to talk. But but and in terms of that, yeah, that's that's exactly right and that's really what I was referring to in terms of your lived experience and the lived experience of others. But I guess, uh, you know, at that time and you've referred to it, uh, you know, you've referred to it, it's we sort of, we had the halcyon days of Manchurian candidates and other things happening in the parliament, all kinds of wild rhetoric around at that time, which is a different question to the the difference in values between a democracy like Australia and an authoritarian regime like China. But we had all kinds of numpty language flying around at that time that was incredibly unhelpful. Do you see that as part of uh, the problem for why, uh, you know, why why there wasn't this productive, there wasn't a way to break the logjam is what I'm trying to get at. Well, I think and the example you gave and the, the period I was referring to, particularly in that tight context around the last election campaign, uh, when you also you know, had the description, I think, of the Solomon Islands Security Treaty being the, you know, the biggest foreign policy failure in Australia since World War yeah. II and the yeah. way that was attributed where the point I was making, I think we're seeing now, that's a much more complicated competition at play there. Uh, and of course, we want to pursue and uh, will continue to support the government in pursuing the closest relationship we can with the Solomons and maintaining our position as their preferred security partner. But the complexity is a real, and I think it was oversimplified in the campaign as to how yeah. that might be addressed along yeah. with other issues you raise that, uh, that escalated tensions in this space. That was the the domestic political battle. Mm. Um, In terms of China and how they perceived Australia through that time, I think their overwhelming gripes and complaints and causes for action were about the actions Australia was taking. Mm. Um, We would always reinforce we are a vibrant democracy with a free media what a member of parliament says that lands on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald or what feature gets written by journalists about foreign interference in this country, it's beyond the control of the yeah. government of the day. Yeah. And, uh, and whilst that is markedly different to the control system that exists in China, uh, I think they do recognise that. The grievances really did come down not so much to what was written, reported or said mm. as much as what those actions yep. that, uh, that were being taken. But I stand by all of those actions and they've now endured with bipartisan support and, uh, of course, we need to be willing to take those types of actions again. And it's notable just in the last couple of days the European Union has put in place a new economic coercion regulation mm. and this was driven by their experience of China targeting Lithuania uh, and the sanctions that were applied there. And the EU has developed a mechanism and a regulatory regime to allow them to better support other EU member states in the future. Mm-hmm. So 
we shouldn't. You know, sometimes I think we think it was just Australia. It wasn't just Australia. Oh, no. There are other examples no. yeah. around the world. Yeah. And even to this day, you've got places like the European Union building mechanisms to have greater resilience to respond to these sorts of challenges in the future. Oh, of course. I mean, it was a real thing that the government, your your the previous government was dealing with. There were a bunch of very, very real issues. I'm not diminishing that for one second. And, you know, very, very complex issues to manage. Uh, but I suppose we, we're sort of, again, we're sort of in this phase of thaw. I, I certainly haven't noticed you running around the paddock um, <laughs> raising the temperature or raising the stakes around this. So I guess the question is, uh, so is the thaw a bipartisan mission? We welcome the breakthroughs and we want to see Australian industry able to operate under the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement that, uh, that we negotiated and brought into law and to operate in ways where China is honouring the terms of that agreement and they have been in breach of that agreement as a result of the uh, trade sanctions they applied. And I think it's no coincidence that both in the case of the barley sanctions and the wine sanctions, China announced its review and negotiated that with the Albanese government after receipt of the initial findings of the World Trade Organisation. So in both cases, I think we can be pretty confident the World Trade Organisation, to which Australia appealed, was finding against China. Yep. And that provided a motivation in terms of China saying, well, we don't want the independent umpire calling this out as economic coercion. We will negotiate. Now, is it the right thing for the Albanese government to therefore enter into those negotiations? Well, from an Australian industry perspective, if it gets an outcome faster that sees the trade sanctions lifted, and enables us to stabilise the relationship, of course, that's welcomed by industry. It's good for Australian business and jobs. Mm. But it's also important that everybody remembers the risk profile, I think, has changed. Mm. We've come through a difficult period. There's greater awareness of just how quickly actions like this could be taken and that they are taken, sadly, in breach of undertakings or, or agreements that have been entered into uh, and therefore the need to diversify uh, remains critical. Uh, the need to build uh, in terms of more diverse supply chains remains important and all of those other factors that, that ought to be considered as well as the, uh, of course, crucial security factors that are critical too. Mm. Let's go to Israel. The war remains deeply troubling at all kinds of levels and the scale of humanitarian suffering also accompanies, you know, an escalation in hostilities. So the, the trajectory still appears dangerous and I don't because obviously we like these conversations to be a bit timeless in terms of the podcast. I don't want to strand us around particular issues because it's it's a movable feast. I think uh, folks listening to the show may have seen or seen news reports of the uh, uh, the ambassador uh, at the National Press Club uh, this week. Uh, that happened on Wednesday. It was quite an interesting presentation uh, by him, I thought, as well. Um, I suppose sort of bouncing off, off that outing by the um, Israeli ambassador and some of the questioning backwards and forwards, something that really occurred to me listening to it was... I guess there's a risk, isn't there? If obviously there was a there was a heinous act, you know these these uh, militants from Hamas storming across the border, massacring civilians, 
taking hostages, just unbe- unbearable and inexcusable. But then obviously Israel has a right to defend itself. Uh, it's clear that uh, Israel's objectives, at least in terms of this conflict, are to you know disable or disband Hamas. That's that's a strategic objective. You can understand why it would be. Uh, but the more things escalate, uh, the more a cycle gets created, and this is the story of of you know this country and and that region. <sighs> the hotter it gets, a new generation of people are then radicalised in conditions like we're seeing in Gaza at the moment, that imperils Israel's security. Looking forward, because it becomes a cycle, it becomes a bus you can't get off. How concerned are you about that cycle? There are, I mean, there are so many things to be concerned about at uh, at present, and and in in that question you framed and put a, a number of them, and the tragic loss of innocent lives, uh, be they of course the Israeli lives lost uh, from Hamas's outrageous uh, and atrocious uh, terrorist act, uh, and the continued holding of hostages and the enormous stress and trauma created by that, but also innocent lives being lost and the lives of children and others uh, in Gaza. Mm. Uh, and all of those innocent lives being lost uh, are a tragedy. Uh, and the potential for more to be lost is also a tragedy. Yet the choice that Israel, of course, faces is that if it doesn't disable Hamas, if it doesn't remove them from a position of being able to undertake such terrorist acts, then it lives under the constant threat and likelihood of more atrocities mm. being undertaken in the future. So your question sort of went to the many steps down the path. What does the world look like? Uh, what does that particular region look like um, sometime after the immediate uh, points of this conflict have unfolded? And I think the hope we have to have and the discussions that are important globally are around how Gaza in particular uh, and, of course, Palestinian peoples more generally are supported and rebuilt in the period after that conflict without uh, a Hamas government in place uh, using the position of government as an ability uh, to build its terrorist capabilities mm-hmm. uh, And so there will be a clear role in some form or another for the international community, particularly probably Arab states, to hopefully step up and play a leading role in providing for some form of peacekeeping, some form of rebuilding, some form of stabilisation that may eventually lead to proper peace discussions and proper discussions about how Israelis and Palestinians can live side by side, um, hopefully, maybe, ultimately in a two-state solution. But that part seems so remote at present mm. that uh, that I think just getting to the what type of stabilisation force could, uh, could exist and operate uh, is going to be a big enough test for whether international cooperation is viable nowadays. Mm. But we should be mindful. You know, there are... Australia still contributes to to three international forces within that immediate region 
two of them UN-led, one of them a, a non-UN but multinational force, um, dealing with issues such as the Sinai but uh, elsewhere that historically have seen some form of negotiation and have seen international cooperation to bring to bear that type of stabilisation arrangement. So perhaps at present in the depth of darkness that everybody is in, it is very hard amongst the day-to-day media coverage, the terrible, terrible tragedy around the loss of life to, to look to what could sound like an optimistic scenario, but something is going to have to hopefully replace Hamas Mm. in Gaza and it is upon the shoulders of the international community to be amidst all of the immediate problems also thinking and looking about what that medium-term arrangement looks like. Well, that's sort of what's prompted the question and and obviously... Well, I, I won't put words in your mouth. I'll just I'll just sharpen the question. Uh, obviously, you know, I would think it, it's in Israel's interests to. Well, I don't, I don't want to invoke the word restraint because we had a very That's a different debate. Which well, we, can... we had a very, in my view, very silly, <laughs> silly kind of. <laughs> You know, the, the, this whole debate about the Middle East can be very superficial and it can be very binary and very cartoonish, but the circumstances do make the case for the, for restraint, don't they? I mean, let's insert another word so that we're not, you know, we're not sort of making this more difficult than it is, but, I mean, it's in Israel's interests is what I'm trying to say to think about the medium term rather than just what's occurring now. Firstly, Words and the timing of words matter, and uh, and that's the the debate that ensued then. But uh, as and I avoided using that word at the time, but I did make clear um, on the very first hours after uh, the atrocities of uh, of October seven were becoming clear uh, that the protection of innocent lives was uh, was important. I I knew that Israel was going to respond, had a right to respond, mm-hmm. and a need to respond, and. Mm-hmm to your question in terms of, you know, they're thinking about the medium term, it's right for them to be thinking about how they remove Hamas from power mm. and how they remove them from having that capability to undertake these type of terrorist acts in the future. And tragically, while Hamas continues to hold hostages, to use Palestinian civilians as a shield, the circumstances are such that the removal of them from power is going to see further loss of innocent life. Israel should act in ways that are consistent with international humanitarian law. That's the bipartisan motion supported through the parliament mm. and uh, and we all support that. Uh, others will be judge of that over the weeks, months and years to come, I've got no doubt, and, uh, and there are appropriate international ways in which those questions are answered. But that medium-term proposition starts firstly with the removal of Hamas, secondly with the what comes next equation. And my urging is for people to be thinking about that. Uh, I think one of, there were so many tragedies, but in a a policy-making and diplomatic engagement sense, one of the tragedies that came out of the misreporting around the The hospital hospital explosion Mm. was that President Biden missed the opportunity, lost the opportunity. It was taken away from him to meet with a number of the Middle East leaders, the Arab nation leaders, while he was in the region. Uh, and that was no doubt an opportunity for 
him to be working on the immediacy of how the conflict is contained at present, but also the medium term of how once Hamas is removed, the region responds and tries to support something that provides a, a better and more stable future. Now, I've no doubt that Secretary Blinken and President Biden are trying to continue that diplomatic effort, hmm. uh, and it's it's critical for them to do so. But uh, but uh, we saw the consequences of people being too ready to believe reports of Hamas and not actually applying uh, the the filter and lens of of waiting for credible evidence. Mm, well, it's sort of the difficulty writ large. It's sort of from our perspective as reporters, it's sort of like, you know, the, the, the difficulties associated or, or getting to truth in conflicts like this, sort of as kinetic and terrible as this. And then, and then I have this further deep annoyance about the superficiality of the way this debate is conducted and the language that gets used. Uh, but anyway. I, I saw footage the other day from Berlin, um, and, and I was in Berlin in the days after uh, October 7, coincidentally, but the footage I saw was was only of recent days. It was a rally being addressed by the Israeli ambassador mm-hmm. to, uh, to Germany. And in that rally were waving, people waving Israeli flags and Palestinian flags. Mm-hmm. And it's, that was focused on the type of bringing community together that yeah. ideally we would all see. Mm. And in the Australian community where we want to see people respected regardless of their background, Islamophobia has no place just as anti-Semitism has no place, it would be fabulous to see rather than communities taking sides mm. that they were actually standing together as one against that loss of innocent lives, against the horrific terrorist attacks of Hamas uh, and united in trying to see that more optimistic future and uh, and uh, in urging all, wherever they've come from, whether it's the Middle East or elsewhere, to, that when you come to Australia, bring your faith, bring your backgrounds, bring your culture, bring your heritage, but leave the differences at the door uh, and seek to respect one another is you know, is really the Australian ask and mantra. Yeah, but you know, obviously, the tone of political discussion impacts on that. So, um, I agree, it's the worthy aspiration. I hadn't seen those pictures. It's a it's a nice thought to have in your mind because we're seeing a lot of uh, you know appalling pictures. Also, now we're on the clock now. Obviously, I need a couple of questions because you are the most senior Liberal moderate left. Maurice is gone. Um, I've just got to ask you: <laughs> Are you hanging around? Yes, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm here. I'm committed. I'm. Yeah, I'm fortunate to have a portfolio that is is more stimulating than I would wish it to be given the topics we've uh, we've just been discussing. Uh, I believe there's a responsibility in terms of uh, people who I find myself now having some experience around uh, around this place. I still feel youngish and mm. and with youngish comes a feeling of newishness, but that's no longer the case. And mm-hmm. so the experience is uh, is important to bring to the team and the perspective of uh, of now having seen, What's worked, what hasn't worked over the years, and uh, and how we confront the 
challenges of opposition and uh, rebuild to be a, a credible alternative government and, and hopefully a successful future government. Liberal Party to me, though, in terms of the way it's presenting to voters at the moment, and I said something similar to Julian Lisa, we had this conversation a few weeks ago on the pod, doesn't feel like a broad church to me at the moment. It's very monotonal. If we think about the last parliament, obviously that's a function of numbers. A lot of uh, talented moderate liberals lost their seats uh, in the last federal election, but pretty monotonal at the moment. Doesn't feel doesn't feel to me like uh, moderate voices are quite as present as they have been in some periods past. Am I wrong about that? Well, I think if I if I take it out of the the factional landscape, even just in a geographical sense, um, the consequences of the last election, in particular has seen very few city-based and even uh, metropolitan-based MPs limited, uh, and particularly outside of Queensland, relatively few uh, city or metropolitan-based MPs uh, within the party room. And so we have a a real work to, job to do to rebuild our electoral position uh, in those metropolitan areas and uh, and across Australia's cities, and to make sure that that gives the type of balance to uh, to the party room in the future, geographically different perspectives, and uh, and yes, in terms of philosophical outlook and values, I certainly still believe that you know, John Howard's oft-stated mantra about the fact that the party is at its strongest when both wings uh, are flying well uh, is an important. Element there that uh, that we are a custodian of liberal tradition and conservative tradition uh, in this country, and that we need to maintain that to be at our strongest uh, in terms of the policy platforms and positions we take, but also electorally. And uh, and I think also though that if I if I reflect on where the Australian electorate appears to be at, I think they're overwhelmingly practically driven in uh, in terms of electoral thinking and outlook. And so to reconnect uh, with particularly suburban and metropolitan households, they're really going to want to see the practical questions around how we tackle electricity prices and emissions, uh, how we make sure uh, that we have strong answers for cost of living and inflationary pressures and women's workforce participation, Uh, how we ensure that in the national security type space, we're giving reassurance to Australia having strong national defences, a secure place in the world and alliances, as well as strong and credible diplomatic presence and engagement with the world to make sure that we are planning for the worst, but working for the best. What about the teal seats? Uh, Independents are hard to dislodge once they are there. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try uh, and there will be different points across the teal seats that I think we can pursue. Uh, We saw on the industrial relations legislation uh, that teal MPs took different stances and uh, there is, of course, another test in industrial relations legislation coming up. And so I think that gives some opportunity to start to, to tease out in some of those practical areas that affect small businesses across teal seats, that affect uh, um, others in, uh, in, who are focused on economic values to highlight that um, they are not necessarily economic liberals as well as 
social liberals or however they choose to frame themselves, that uh, that some of them have far closer positions to the Labor Party. And, uh, and so we'll have to look carefully at how we frame that. Of course, the policy positions I was talking about before, which I think remain important in those teal seats and, uh, and especially um, some of those challenges around housing and entry and access to the housing market, where mm. we're seeing higher levels of renters in some of those seats. Yep. Our party needs to make sure uh, that those voters see a pathway to home ownership. Uh, that has to be our answer, uh, not one focused on the rental market, but one focused on getting people out of the rental market and into home ownership and that that can equally be a strong and credible pathway and proposition of practical steps into those types of communities. Yeah, I think it's possible and I've in various pod episodes I've mentioned this for listeners, I think it is possible that we see something quite interesting from you guys on housing and that that will be interesting. But And this is a silly question, Simon, because there's no way you can answer it, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, <laughs> it's uh, breath. Well, it's sort of like, yes, of course, policy is part of the answer. Uh, to reconnecting with voters who didn't vote Liberal in the last federal election. Of course, it's part of the answer. But is uh, but as I said, things are very monotonal. I don't know that Peter Dutton is your best sales card in teal electorates as, you know, hello, come back to the Liberal Party, we really get you, based on all the positioning to date. Uh, you know, how is the Liberal Party going, going to go about this conversation with disaffected metropolitan voters because I don't think your current leader is your best salesperson. Well, uh, plenty of people said that, of course, about Tony Abbott back at uh, back at the time as well. And in Peter, I think there's a leader who is even more geared towards practical solutions and approaches. I, I don't see in Peter somebody who is actually all that motivated by what might be you know, described as the culture wars or or those types of things. Peter has strong and firm positions. There's no doubt about that. And he's had to make difficult decisions throughout the years. Uh, but nor has he necessarily been driven or fixated in, uh, in terms of different social policy areas that have formed the schism of, uh, of the country over the years. His mm. focus has no, been fair. in those areas yeah. of national security and bread and butter politics issues mm. and, uh, and and say, yes, he's made hard, difficult decisions that have given him a, a hard image at times. Um, there's no denying that. Uh, but I think it's a different lens of interest and issues to, for example, what Tony had, who obviously did win the support of the electorate, including at that stage those teal seats. But Tony Abbott weaponised climate change, which is an area that you care you know, I know very deeply about that was a, a big part of that story, and and the liberal and the Labor Party killing itself in plain view that that also helped. But you know, this is what this is the crux of what I'm trying to get to. Yes, of course, uh, that experience shows you know unpopular leaders. You're I'll, I'll, you're far too polite to say unpopular leaders, but obviously Tony was Tony Abbott was. Yet he won an election anyway, but he did it by weaponising climate change, and we see Peter Dutton limbering up for similar sorties in some of the resource states and all of that sort of stuff. You know, you're not going to be very comfortable about that, I don't think. Well, uh, and there's a whole other podcast in uh, in terms of, you know, of particularly you know, some of the energy policy and climate change yeah. settings. Yeah, we should uh, have a yak about my, that. You know, my mm. view is certainly that 
in the discussion we are having about whether nuclear energy plays a role in Australia, nuclear energy may well be important, possibly even essential to Australia being able to guarantee energy supply, affordability, reliability for industry and heavy industry in particular in a net zero landscape. Mm. And all of those have to go together for a policy like that to hold up in terms of why you would pursue it and how it is presented to the electorate. Mm. Anyway, you're right. There is a full pot in that, but we'll do that at another time. Simon, thanks for your time. Thanks, Catherine. My pleasure. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. We appreciate it as always. Don't forget to listen, you know, share, rate, review, all of the, all of that jazz. Uh, the executive producer of the show is Miles Martignoni. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.